Welcome back to Thinking Through Autonomy for a special episode featuring cybersecurity guru, Bruce Schneier. Almost immediately after our interview with Bruce had been published, we started receiving requests for more thoughts from him and a deeper dive on autonomous vehicle security. So to our loyal listeners who contacted us on Reddit or LinkedIn, or even by email, here's our encore with Bruce. It's called 10 Questions on Automotive Cybersecurity. Welcome to Thinking Through Autonomy, a podcast to help you understand the promise and impact of autonomous land and air vehicles in our world. I'm Ken Dunlap, managing partner of Catalyst Go, taking you on this journey. Hear and read more at thinkingthroughautonomy.com. Now it's time to take your hands off the wheel, foot off the pedal, hand off that throttle, and let's go. Bruce, let's continue our discussion on cybersecurity and autonomous vehicles. When we think about cybersecurity, I think we have to think about who is posing the threat. And so I'm wondering, what are your thoughts on who is the threat actor in this domain and who are we trying to protect these vehicles from? You know, it's like every domain. The threat actor is everybody. We're trying to protect these vehicles and passengers from everything. So, you know, let's let's tick down the list. Uh, we certainly have to protect ourselves from the people in the vehicle who might want to, going to make this up, drive faster than the speed limit or somehow you know, trick the car into doing things that it shouldn't do or wouldn't do otherwise. We have to worry about people who might want to steal the car. People might want to cause the car to crash. People might want to, you know, just dink with the system. People who might want to extort money, right? Ransomware. I worry about ransomware against my computer. I mean, we see ransomware against cities, ransomware against cars. So ways to profit. Uh, we have to worry about the car manufacturers themselves. Remember the Volkswagen scandal? I remember Here's that. Volkswagen, right? Here's Volkswagen fiddling with the software that runs their engines to detect emission control tests so they can cheat on the tests. You start thinking about cars, it's no different than anything else. I mean, there are a lot of different threat actors with lots of different motivations, right? Ranging from fun to money to, you know, maybe some malicious state actor. I'm going to make this up. Uh, one country invades another country, and before they do that, they disable all the cars or force all the cars to drive off the road or something like that, right? So lots of threats, lots of threat actors. There's no shortage of things to worry about here. Well, do I need to stop and say that this problem is maybe so large, it's tough to figure out where to start? Well, it is tough to figure out where to start. And unlike your computer, when, it, when a car crashes, you can die. So that makes us pause a little bit more. And maybe we should stop some things. I mean, I don't know the answer here, but now you're starting to ask the right questions. And the change when we move from the internet of computers and phones to the internet of things is that things affect life and property. And cars are especially dangerous objects in our world. In the United States, they kill 40,000 people every year. That is an enormous number of people. And you know, they're dangerous with drivers in them. We'd like them to be less dangerous when they become autonomous. And pulling out the human being will certainly be an improvement. People are terrible drivers. right? They drive under impairment. They drive – you know, when they're distracted, I mean, we all know why humans are just terrible drivers. So under the best of circumstances, computers will be much better drivers. But under the worst of circumstances, you can get class breaks. 
So you think about your computer, someone discovers a new vulnerability, there's a new worm, and now millions of computers are infected, right? That, that is a certain way computers fail that normal things don't, but we have to think about that in cars. So what happens when someone decides to crash all the cars or disable all the cars? Or hijack and, and you know install ransomware in all the cars. Knowing that that's a little hyperbole, it's probably all the cars of one make and one model year, right? One software rev. But you could imagine this affecting millions of vehicles. So you ask, should we pause? You know, in some cases maybe. And and we're seeing examples of this in uh, some of the driver assisted cars. You know, all the uh, research we're seeing in fooling the cameras into ignoring stop signs, uh, you know, thinking that the speed limit's different, uh, thinking that there are other cars on the road and they have to swerve. I mean, lots of research done in fooling these systems. And they seem to be pretty easy to fool. The one I read actually two days ago, researchers were, were it's, it's, I mean, super clever, right? But, but now we have to worry about this. <laughs> All right. Uh, there, are, there are drones. These drones have projectors. These projectors are projecting things onto the road uh, in the 100 millisecond increments that humans can't see them, but the autopilots can and the autopilots react to them. Okay, that's bad. Now, yes. So, I can't so even this, put this my arms around thing. that. Yeah, That's right. And I guarantee you there are 30 more things like that that you can't even imagine. And there's a point where we might have to say, whoa, you know, this is not like an app on your phone. This is more like a medical device in that getting it wrong kills people. And we can't move with the same speed that we could back when it was, you know, just an app. Bruce, in our last conversation, you commented about the design assurance process for commercial airplanes. And basically what I took from our conversation is, is that commercial airplanes don't leave that factory until their software is about as close to perfect as the manufacturer can make it and as close to perfect as the government wants to certify it. Do we need to have a paradigm like that for driverless vehicles before they hit the road? We might. There's a reason we have that for planes, because when planes crash, people die, and that's bad. If vehicles have those same failure properties, we might need something like that for vehicles. Now, none of us want to talk about that because of how it'll slow down innovation and sort of make everything harder. But you know, we are talking about these, these devices that can kill people. So we at least need to think about that, right? You know, so we know how to do things in extremely dangerous environments, right? Airplanes and medical devices, right? We have certification. We move slowly. Uh, innovation is, is definitely slowed. We know how to do things in the freewheeling world of it doesn't matter what happens, right? People do whatever they want, and we have lots of insecure everything. And, you know, it's bad, but it's kind of okay, and we muddle through. Cars are more like planes and medical devices than they are like things that don't matter. So we at least need a policy discussion where we actually seriously think about whether we want to put cars under those same rules. I want to get to that in a minute, but I just want to maybe just finish this concept and, and talk this out a little bit more because we hear people talking about design assurance. And the thumbnail sketch of that process is that you have someone or some entity within your manufacturing organization that works full time to make sure that the policies and standards that this company has and federal regulators give you 
are molded into the design process. I mean, do we want to have this? Should we have this? Is that something that will appreciably affect for the positive the design and the construction of autonomous vehicles? Well, we know what happens when it goes badly, right? 737 MAX, right? We have an example, right, from recent memory in past few months of what happens when we have a certification regime, but the company is in charge of it, right? The government regulators aren't really doing their job. They don't understand the systems are too complicated. So they go to Boeing and say, look, you know, you know the rules. Just promise us that you're following them. And Boeing says, oh, yeah, we're following. Don't even worry about it. Not a problem. And of course, it was a huge problem. So, you know, if we do have that kind of regime where, you know, governments are going to do certifications and checking, we need to figure out how to make sure that works and, and, and doesn't fail. Is the lesson then, since you refer to Boeing 737 MAX and the ripple effect that it's going to have across certainly not only um, FAA, but other parts of Department of Transportation, is that lesson then no company, no private entity should be allowed to self-certify compliance, that we need to have a legion of regulators making sure um, that? I mean, there are ways to uh, allow companies to self-certify. So, for example, if seven executives at Boeing went to jail, then self-certification would work, right? Because every company says, whoa, right? not fines, right? You mean, remember the fine against Facebook. They don't care. I mean, people, companies make lots of money. But actually, executives going to jail. If that happens, that is a regulatory regime that will allow for self-certification, right? Kind of works for crime in the United States. We don't prevent crime. But, but we, you know that you're going to go to jail if you commit a crime, so largely people don't. Right? That kind of regime works if the penalty is strong enough. So if you want companies to self-certify, I'm not sure there's any other way to do it because it is so complicated. Things are going to be moving so fast. The uh, legion of regulators will not be as well paid. I mean, you won't get the best people. It's going to be hard. You need to make the penalties something that will be noticed. And, and you know, we saw that in Volkswagen, right? In Germany, executives did go to jail. Now, that's a big deal. That will make the auto company notice that and not do that again. And Volkswagen seemingly doesn't design cars the same way they used to before this happened. Right. And, and you know, hopefully this will not happen again. But that's just the sort of thing you have to worry about. I mean, the, the lesson of the 737 MAX is that Boeing did everything they could to pretend that the change wasn't a change that made a difference. Because if it was, they'd have to go through an expensive recertification process. And so they pretended the change was didn't matter. It wasn't a real change. It was a minor change. We can use the minor change procedure, not the major change procedure. I'm just I'm making this up, but that's basically what happened. Now that's that's a decision. Now if that is deemed to be wrong, whoever made that decision should pay a penalty. And to the extent they do, they'll be more cautious next time about making that same decision. So if we have penalties, we also know that the government is going to get involved in labeling activities. So if we go back to, you know, the discussion of design assurance principles, um, in certain industries, we have the government labeling things as catastrophic failures or failures that have no effect. When you think about how the tech world operates and you think about how driverless cars are being put together, do you think this kind of labeling is useful to the design process, hinders the design process, or wh where does it fit? You know, I don't think we know yet. My guess it'll be some of each. 
I mean, so now we're discussing the details. We know we have to somehow regulate that unfettered corporate development is means that safety and security will take a backseat, right? We know that's true. That, that's not even controversial. So the missing ingredient is government. And now the question is, what are the details of how government gets involved? What, what are the mechanisms? I don't know. I don't think anybody knows. You know, um, my guess is it's some of each and nothing will be perfect and everything will have some, some benefits. But, you know, these are things that we're going to have to figure out somehow that we'll have to start having conversations, trying things, seeing it work, seeing what doesn't. This is hard. It's very hard for law to do this. It's funny. I think a lot about what government regulation looks like in the 21st century, what it looks like for tech. And there's a big difference between tech and policy. In tech, we try things and then if they don't work, we fix them. We do that all the time. Right? Failure is not failure. Failure is learning. We would we, you know, try a prototype, get it to work, version 1.0. You know, have people try the beta. That doesn't work in policy. In policy, we're very much you get one shot at doing it and better be perfect. I don't think we can do that with technologies like driverless cars. We just don't know enough. Right? So, so my guess is we're going to have some regulatory agency with broad power like the FAA, like the DOT, and that they will try different things without having to go back and pass a new law because that's impossible. So Bruce, and it'll be a combination of, of you know, pre-certifying, self-certifying, testing, liabilities. I mean, you know, all the different mechanisms we have to incent corporate behavior. Bruce, isn't one of the big issues out there, the 800-pound gorilla issues, is that cybersecurity and the responsibility for regulating it and even defining it falls across many, many U.S. government departments. And we have the Department of Homeland Security staking a claim on this. It's a vehicle, so certainly the Department of Transportation is going to um, stake a claim. How do you think we ha present a unified regulatory front when every piece of the government wants a piece of this? And I struggle with this in my latest book, and it's even bigger than that. Now, you imagine that computers are in cars and planes and appliances and toys and radios and phones, all different regulatory agencies, which because we regulate based on function. But it might be the exact same computer chip, the exact same operating system, the exact same software is, is operating in all those environments, which is a regulatory mess. Uh, my guess is we still have to regulate based on function, that the regulations for cars won't be the same as the regulations for toys because that makes no sense. But there'll have to be some common technical organization where the expertise in the tech resides. Uh, the model I proposed in my book was loosely based on the Director of National Intelligence model, the ODNI. Mm -hmm. right? that, that we have many intelligence agencies, but the ODNI does central coordination. And so something like that will make sense. We do need verticals based on uh, application, but we also need horizontal because it's all a computer and it's all going to be the same computer. You know, right now there are apps on my phone that talk to my car, that control my thermostat, that uh, communicate with my friends, I mean, I mean, or do all sorts of things. I mean, if I had a medical device, it would have an app, but it's, it's one phone. 
So how do we make that work? And, and I think we are still struggling with that. But my guess is, is that it's some kind of model like that, where it's vertical based on application, but there's some horizontal component because they're all computers. So on a more practical basis, we have manufacturers like Argo or Tesla that are building these vehicles that are a combination of proprietary technology that relies on COTS components. And in a sense, they kind of serve as the, not only the thought integrator, but the integrator of all of these components. And we know that in some regulatory regimes that the government assist, is insisting that these OEMs reverse engineer COTS components as part of their quality assurance process. Do you think there's a future where we're going to insist that the manufacturers literally pull apart what they're putting in their vehicles? We might. You know, we talk about that with AI and algorithms all the time. How do we know how the algorithm reaches a decision? It makes a decision about bail, about parole, about a loan application. How do we know it's making its decision in a way that's acceptable? And we're going to need to know that about cars, right? The car is going to decide whether to swerve left or swerve right. It's going to make a decision uh, whether it's going to break the speed limit if the person in the car presses the emergency get me to the nearest hospital button. How will it make those decisions? And right now they're going to be opaque. And I think in many cases for algorithms that affect life and property and well-being and, and fairness – we as society are going to demand to see under the hood and understand how it works. And speaking about under the hood, I love that metaphor, <laughs> driverless car discussion. Um, let's talk about the CPUs that are, you know, are metaphorically driving these vehicles for us. And one of the issues that continues to crop up, as you know, is that the most common processor right now is a multi-core processor. But also, we have things and processes that are safety critical. We have some such as, well, you know, playing the radio on the car. Do we need to look at how these multi-core processors are used across applications, across safety critical applications? Do we cut them off so that safety critical applications have their own processor? What does that kind of look like? Uh, you know, I mean, again, we, we could look at airplanes now to see how it's done. You know, right now, airplanes, uh, we sort of pretend that they're separate, even though they're not. We worry about apps crossing over from low critical to high critical. Uh, car, a car bus is even worse. You know, people have been hacking automobile buses today. It's very easy to jump from like the radio to the steering. And if the car is going to be autonomous, I have to worry about malware. You know, we, we've seen in, in uh, someone demonstrated a few years ago to be able to deliver malware into a car via the DVD player. And so those things are definitely things we have to worry about. And just like in the real world, it's very hard to separate networks. It's going to be very hard in uh, critical, critical systems like cars and planes and medical devices. You know, we might need actual separation where the wires themselves are different. And it's really going to depend on what our risk appetite is. How much do we want these vehicles versus their risk? You know, I mean, I hate to delay driverless cars because, as I said earlier, humans are such bad drivers that anything will be an improvement. But when we, we, we replace a human failure, which is sort of a steady state failure of, you know, one or two people over the course of a year with these more catastrophic failures, 
right? Every Ford, every Chrysler, every car in this city. You know, we haven't even started talking about the, the other systems that are around the cars, the traffic signals, the lights, the emergency. I mean, I, I have to worry about uh, hacking all of those as well because they're going to be feeding information to the cars. One of the things that I just want to get back to briefly um, as we close this special episode of Thinking Through Autonomy is that over the course of the last two discussions we've had, we've talked about the importance of the human interface. We've, we've talked about interfaces that can be hacked, that can't be hacked, or that maybe cause the drivers to do things that they wouldn't normally do. When a computer designer, an interface designer sits down and says, I want to design this cleanly so that I'm not adding additional vulnerabilities to the vehicle, what's the thought process that goes on? And, and can we take the thought process that gives us an app on our phone and apply that to what's happening with driverless vehicles? It is the same thought process. How do we give users control without letting them get themselves into trouble? And, you know, there are lots of examples of us getting it wrong. And you could sort of know what it is by listening to some of the dumb security advice that we like to give people. Right? Don't plug strange USB sticks into computers. Right? It's a USB stick. What are you supposed to do with it? Well, the problem was the USB system was designed so insecurely that a malicious USB stick could take over a computer. So now we have to give people that kind of advice. So, so when we look at the user interface, I think we want to look at how to give users control without letting them do things that would be against their interest. You know, when I imagine the future driverless cars, I think of it like Google Maps, but with a car, right? I type the address into my uh, screen and it comes up with a route. I push go and the car goes there, right? That's what we want. And we can design that interface to, to be good. Now I have to worry about someone maliciously going after that interface either from the inside of the car, from the outside of the car, uh, the manufacturer, maybe, I don't know, I'm going to make this up. Some, uh, some advertiser wants to ensure that all of your routes that you plot go past their store. You know, I have to worry about all of those things. So user interfaces will protect against users making mistakes or not skilled users doing bad things doesn't protect much against a skilled hacker or a skilled criminal because they're going to go around or inside the interface. Now, there's something we talked about. I forget what we talked about. We talked about life cycle. We were talking about life cycle. Yeah. Let me, there's something I think is really important with cars that doesn't exist for the computers we're used to. If you think about your laptop or your phone and how old it is, you probably replace it every three to five years. Right, there's a natural churn of these devices, and that really aids with security because the new version is, is newer and better and more secure. Cars have a much longer life cycle. You drive a car for 10 years. You sell it, and someone else drives it for 10 years. They sell it. And then at that point, it's probably put in a boat, shipped to Latin America, where someone else drives it for another 10 to 20 years. So you know, think about what that means in terms of computers. That means, I mean, equivalently, you go home, find a computer from 1977 and try to boot it up, try to make it work, try to make it secure. You know, are, are we going to expect auto manufacturers to maintain 40-year-old software? We actually don't know how to do that. If you think about Microsoft and Apple, they depreciate their operating systems. After what, seven years? 
because maintaining the old yeah. stuff, right, is is really hard. We cannot, you know, buy new cars at the rate we buy new phones. That would literally cook the planet. But we need to figure out something. There's a, there's a lot here that we don't know how to do as engineers. Well, do you think, Bruce, on, on, on this note, that it makes sense to set a time limit and say this technology will be deprecated in 20 years? Or do we specify a behavior and say if this vehicle can no longer do X, Y, or Z, it's now deprecated and we'll turn it off and we'll take the keys? My fear is that'll be too expensive. My fear is that will literally cook the planet by forcing us to manufacture three times the cars. Auto, the auto companies would love it, but I don't think that's smart. I think we have to think more in terms of modular parts. Can I rip out the computer and put in a new one? Can I rip out the braking system and put in a new one? Is there a way that I can make my thing? And now, I mean, this, this question is bigger than cars because honestly, you're not going to replace your refrigerator every five years either or your thermostat. You know, things that we buy tend to last a lot longer than the computers we buy. So I think we need to think differently about how we manufacture them so we can maintain them for 20 years or 40 years. Well, Bruce, you have been an incredibly fantastic guest, and I can't thank you enough for joining us with these 10 questions to follow up that really wonderful conversation we had. Thank you. (laughs) 